This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Delighted to be joined by the award-winning Stephen McGowan. I've, I've went on record, I'm going to embarrass him here in the introduction, but in Scotland there are, are two journalists who every single week I go out my way to make sure I do not miss, and Stephen is one of them, along with his colleague Hugh McDonald. And to have Stephen on today is an absolute pleasure. Not only does he work with male sport and the written media in Scotland, he's also been doing a wee bit of work with BT Sport as well and, and their highly successful coverage of Scottish football. First of all, Stephen, thank you for joining me. No problem at all. You're embarrassing me, but thank you very much. <laughs> I, I, I mentioned winning those awards, and, and, and obviously that's something that, that is, 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 must be a great feeling. Just, just what's it been like for you covering football, especially in Scotland, throughout the decades? Well, I suppose they always say if you're going to try and make a, a career or a job, you should try and make it something you enjoy, something that's your hobby. And I mean, that's, that's essentially what I did. I mean, I... Probably decided at the age of 11 or 12 I wanted to do journalism. I went, I went to do the DC Thompson training scheme when I was a, a kind of graduate. I'd worked in an employment agency in Aberdeen for a couple of years, bizarrely, uh, but I wanted to get into journalism. I went to DC Thompson training scheme. That was basically the only guy out of about a dozen who was interested in football and sports. So I could move down to work for the, what was it, Weekly News in Glasgow. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, and put on Dash Road and did sh uh, sub-editing shifts on Sunday Post, Saturday, Friday and Saturday. And that was a kind of grounding for it. And um, yeah, it was kind of like falling into something that I'd always wanted to do, really. You know, not falling into it, because I'd really wanted to. I pursued it and I tried to make it happen. It's not the easiest thing to do. Uh, these days, the challenge is staying in it, really, as opposed to getting into it. But that's a different story. You, you mentioned the fact that staying in it's a challenge. You've, you've been in the game a long time. And, and as I say, when it comes to your, your current work, it's still work that many people in Scotland look out for um, mm. in regards to the written form. But you've also been doing work in the audio side of things, in some video side of things as well with BT Sport. How's that been going? Oh, well, fine. I mean, um, you know, they, they, they keep up the, the Scottish Football Extra programme, which I think everybody enjoyed, you know. It's, it's a strange one because obviously they're not covering the games anymore, but uh, every Friday night, all, I mean, all I really contribute is a small bit, just 60 seconds, the week in 60 seconds, just, just writing up a script for that from time to time, kind of recording it myself. Um, so, yeah, it's nice. It's good. I mean, I, I, think, um, I think for any journalist now, you need to have as many strings to your bow as you can, really. Um, uh, as I the art of basic survival, but no, I, I do enjoy that side of it. I mean, we, we you know, used to do more of that with the you know, Radio Scotland or the other bit Radio Clyde or do the old Scotland Tonight. So I do enjoy that side of it, but I don't think you ever take it for granted. It's just a, it's an added bonus to the day job, as it were. I've got to ask you, you talk about Scottish football the week in 60 seconds. Just how difficult can that be some weeks? Because Scottish <laughs> football is unrivaled in its drama. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I always say if, we, if, if the football was half as good as the Rose, then we would be a, a world-class superpower. I mean, you can say what you like about the quality of the product on the pitch, but off it, it's sensational. I mean, um, you know, we are the... The, the, you know, the, the world capital of kind of small-minded, petty bickering. Um, and listen, journalists can't be co-faced about that, Callum, because that is what keeps us going on a daily basis. You know, and, and, and I think the odd thing, and I think a lot of his comment on this, is that the, kind of, the, 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 way, the more the product diminishes on the pitch in terms of what Scottish clubs achieve and in terms of what the, the national team achieves, the more we actually write about it. You know, if you look back to old newspapers, 30, 40 years ago. I can remember, you know, when the United and Aberdeen were powers in Europe and Celtic and Rangers were still reasonably okay as well. I can remember when the four of them would play in Europe in one night and you would have like three or four match reports in the first spread of a newspaper. Now that's eight pages. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think um, for all the, you know, people talk about print diminishing, we're still producing as much as ever um, with, with, with gradually diminishing results on the pitch, unfortunately. 
Well, it's, it's an interesting time on the pitch and, and even off the pitch at the moment. Um, you've been very forthright in your views when it comes to, to crowds in Scottish football. There's been trial events initially at rugby before football. And then obviously there's the current situation where you've got lower league clubs, junior clubs who are, are making the case that if you can go to a restaurant and socially distance, why can't you go to a junior game and socially distance? And as I say, you've been very forthright on that. Do you think there should be movement in that in the near future? Listen, I don't think anybody pretends this is an easy option or an easy issue. You know, the politicians, I think the thing with, with COVID-19 and coronavirus is sport is like society in general. Um, most of the, the, the areas and the sectors and industries, there's no easy solutions. There's no good solutions, only less bad solutions. You know, you're always looking for the, the option which inflicts the least possible damage on every area. And I think, you know, if you, if you speak to... to the politicians, or, or I don't speak to politicians, but the people in football will tell you that, you know, they think there is a case for this. I think they feel that football has been unfairly um, kind of traduced, or just hasn't been given the same treatment as other areas. I mean, you know, they're trying to help the arts, like 1.5 billion pounds arts packages. That's fine. That's absolutely right. That's necessary. Because they have lost their basic customers. You, know, you can't open theatres, you can't open cinemas. But, you know, football's no different to that. And football is not gaining any support, you know, and, you know, the argument is made and understand it, I get it, it's very hard to give public money to football clubs who are spending millions of pounds, you know, it's Celtic or Rangers spending on Haji or Barkas or uh, Ajeti or even Hibs on Kevin Nisbet. But, you know, I mean, you know, there are West End theatres in London who are calling for money. Andrew Lloyd Webber's calling for money. He spends big money getting the big stars who can get people into the theatres. You know, football clubs are no different. They have businesses trying to, to improve their results and their performance. They shouldn't be penalised or discriminated against because they invest in their product. You know, I mean, this is an ex existential crisis for football clubs. You know, if, if they cannot get supporters in, you know, and they cannot sell season tickets, what people haven't really caught on to yet is a lot of clubs have sold season tickets on the basis that, you know, you will watch the club TV channel and then you'll get back into grounds maybe October, November. They were very much led to believe there was a good chance of that. And now with a second spike, it's not going to be possible. There's a real chance now. You won't have any fans in for the rest of the season. That has to be considered as a, a very real possibility. And that's going to wake clubs out. It's just a simple fact of life. And it's all very well saying, well, the lower league clubs can mothball. Well, they can't now because they've all re-signed players. The championship down to League One and League Two, Warland League, Highland League, um, you know, they can delay the season, but they can't mothball it completely because they have all signed players on contracts. And at the minute, they've got nothing to pay them with. And, and for me, that is the main worry when it comes to the finance, especially of the smaller clubs, that it's too late for mothballing that they've committed to these contracts. It is, and, it is yeah. And, and as good as furlough has been, obviously, as you know, when, when, when you get back into, into work and, and you start... Um, playing games, you're training regularly, the furlough scheme ends for you. So it's really yeah. a, a crisis that we've not really seen before in, in football and, and in society. And I want to get your perspective, yeah. Stephen, having worked in the game, when was the first time that you thought towards the end of last season that there's a real possibility this season is going to be cancelled? Because I remember at the start, um, a lot of people, when they said you couldn't, there was no handshaking and, and, and people were going, well, that, that's maybe a bit a bit silly, That's that seems like an overreaction and then within a matter of weeks it went from no handshaking to, to no football at all. Well, I can give you an exact date, funny enough. Um, you mentioned there the no handshaking thing and I remember the day that was announced uh, speaking to a senior person in Scottish football who said to me, listen, there's a chance we will have to call this. Um, and on the paper on March the 10th, I did write a story doomsday scenario that you know, you might have a situation where they pronounce Celtic champions and Hearts be relegated based on current standings. It took about nine or ten weeks for that to become a serious possibility. Um, but I was aware of it from kind of middle of March that this was very much being talked about by the joint response group, the kind of group set up by the SFA and the SPFL. Um, and, you know, I think they always hoped that once the full scale of the... the you know, the deaths and the casualties and the hospital admissions kicked in and people realised how serious this virus was. The kind of bickering and the horse trading and the, the, the rowing over what should happen to the season would kind of dissipate and fade away. But as anybody who's ever worked in Scottish football for 10 minutes knows, that's not how it works. It's a deeply tribal, small-minded, 
and petty environment. You know, anyway, I was always struck by this from working abroad when I came back to Scotland too. You know, we really are, we are, we are, we are a very, very tribal nation. And uh, as we know, it turned into a really unpleasant old summer. Well, that's the thing. It's it's the thing that was uh, that struck me and, and yourself is the fact that there was no football for a period of months, but you would never have guessed. You had no. programmes in the radio, you had newspapers every day, as you know, we arguably more content to write about than ever, and that was all with oh, no matches. Yeah. You, you, would, you would speak to your old auntie and you would say, oh, son, you know, you must have nothing to write about. You must be joking. Um, they were completely the opposite. It was a coins. Listen, you know, from a journalistic point of view, it was a daily ritual, it was a grind, it was a challenge, but the stories kept coming. Um, you know, if like me, you're somebody who tends to talk to people in kind of chief executive and, and SFA and SPFL circles, then, you know, you, you know, there was a constant stream of stories about calling the season, how do we decide the final placings and relegation promotion, the financial meltdown. Every day there was somebody warning of a meteor heading for the game. You know, with more intergalactic events you can see in a Hollywood movie, you know, it was like Armageddon. Um, and we, we don't want to use that word because people get very upset about that. But yeah, I mean, it, it really was, it was, it was incredible. But there was another side to it as well. There was a personal side for all of us because we're working from home. Basically, your office became your, your, your home. And the statements were coming thick and fast. And some days it was like 12, 13, 14. You know, it felt like a, a relentless, endless day. And almost like back to the Rangers crisis of 2012, where you would think the day was over and then another statement would come out at 10 p.m. just before deadline time. You'd have to go and fix it yet again. So, uh, so yeah, there was plenty to write about, but that, that wasn't always a pleasurable experience, especially when it became quite as kind of bitter and divisive as it did. And in terms of the English game, I mean, you look at Macclesfield Town, a historic club of so many years, um, going out of business, been expelled from, from the National League setup. But for them, I suppose, it's a shame that the next part I want to mention is the fact that the government down south look as if they are going to be giving a, a grant to the National League to allow the, the National League to sort of override losses until around March time next year. Is that something that you think must happen for Scottish football? Or we could see many more clubs like a Macclesfield and a Burry down south who just go to the wall? There's absolutely no question about it. I mean, as it was put to me, to me last week, I mean, there, are top, there are clubs at the war levels, particularly in the Lowlands League and what have you, who are talking about only having five or six weeks of money left. So we really are approaching absolute crisis point. The problem is that, as we know, political circles don't move quickly. So um, whether it's a bit of a race against time, whether they will make any gesture or movement to, towards a kind of sport recovery fund, which allows the money to, 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 to kind of filter down, um, in time to save clubs is, 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 has to be regarded as doubtful. But I suspect what will happen, I think the Scottish Government are speaking to the UK Government about a, a sport recovery fund, and then it will be kind of decided on the, the same basis as the Barnett formula, where Scotland will get some percentage of the overall pot, and then they'll have to decide where it goes. But, uh, you know, you can see the next row already warming up about, you know, why should Celtic or Rangers or Hibs or clubs who are spending money in transfer fees get this money when it's more urgently needed elsewhere? Um, but, you know, the point is, all these clubs, they spend what they earn. You know, they spend what they earn. Um, and, and I can get the, the kind of political difficulties of giving money to private clubs who apparently are spending lots of money. But, you know, if you're Celtic, you're burning £4 million a month on wage at the wage bill. If you're Rangers, you're burning £2.5 million a month. Aberdeen have already said they had a £4 million black hole before selling Scott McKenna. So... There's no discrimination in terms of who this is affecting. It's going right from there, right to there. Um, it's affecting all levels of the game and they are all involved in a fight for, for survival. And as we discussed earlier, the time when the World League clubs could simply mothball and go into hibernation for a year has pretty much passed because of all we signed players. So we are in a very grave, very perilous situation now for the national game. In terms of the national game and to, and to echo that, that sentiment there, Stephen, a lot of people think in a time of crisis, young players can, can start to get their opportunity. But I worry, on the other hand, that academy setups could be one of the first things to go as clubs scramble to save any money they possibly can. Absolutely, can. I think there's no question about that. I think, I think that, that, that's one of the... You know, we, we already were, were, were kind of focusing on youth development and, and grassroots, and that will be the biggest victim of this. If you look at the SFA system, okay, you can argue about whether the performance schools and, and you know, what Malcolm McKay has been trying to do has been a success or not, but they were trying to do something. 
um, I think it was already a, a, a kind of push for the club for to, 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 to kind of denationalise youth development, if you like, for the SFA to get rid of all that coaching staff and to give the money to the clubs. But that, that's only going to speed up now. You know, the, the, the clubs will, will basically take control of their own grassroots. But, you know, what is the first thing that's going to go in a time of crisis? Youth development, youth academies, they're going to pay off youth coaches. We've already seen it elsewhere. You know, lots of, lots of kind of backroom coaches have been furloughed, as you rightly identify, come the end of October. That's not going to be an option anymore. So they'll just pay them off. And I, I really feel there's going to be, a, we're heading for a lost generation of teenage players who are going to be lost, certainly for a year. And if they go away for a year because clubs can't deploy them anymore, is there any guarantee they'll come back in a year? Or will they have to go and find something else to do with their lives? They probably will to make a living. So we are going to lose some talented, decent kids all right, there's only a small percentage make it any given time, but this is this is a it's a kind of it's a kind of human and, and, and technical tragedy for Scottish football. It's in all kinds of levels. It absolutely is, and 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 let's now try and try and reminisce in some happier times because um, <laughs> it is a tough time really at the moment. I mentioned the fact you've covered the game over multiple decades. What are your 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 favourite memories of covering football over those decades? Because there's been there's been so many peaks and troughs when it comes to, to Scottish football. As a journalist, goodness me! I mean, you, you know, you, you would be really. I've been I've been fortunate enough to see to see Celtic Rangers in two European finals. You know, in Seville and then in Manchester with Rangers. Um, you know, I remember Rangers that night going away in Manchester, going away from the ground and getting back in a car to go back to town centre to the hotel, having no idea what had happened in terms of the the, 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 the trouble in the city centre. We were just oblivious to it. So that was surreal. Seville was surreal for other reasons because the whole city was paralysed. But you'd be hard pushed to, to, to really challenge the, the night James McFadden scored that goal in Paris. That whole campaign for the national team where it was Walter Smith and Alex McLeeson, we, I think we really felt we were going to get to the Euro 2008 finals. And McFadden puts that ball in the net. And I always remember us retreating to a, a pub in Paris that night going, oh my God, we're going to do it. We're finally getting back to a major finals. We're going to do it. You know, we're, we're going to take on France. We're going to take on Italy. We'd already pretty much knocked Ukraine out of the equation. You know, when you think about that, it's, it's remarkable. It's incredible. Beat France home and away in that tournament, that, that event. Um, you know, and obviously the second it was the Italy game, if you remember it, when, when uh, I think, yeah, I mean, it was a ridiculous free kick decision by the Spanish referee, I think, was hounded out of Glasgow that night in order never to come back. So so that that, that was really quite something, you know. I mean, I had a, a couple of interesting years as well working in club media. You know, I worked for Celtic's club magazine for 18 months, and that, that was interesting. I was seeing a different perspective on it. So I've, I've had a lot of perspectives, there's been a lot of highs, there's been a few woes as well, but yeah, I mean, I think if you, I think if you ever regard it as anything other than a privilege doing this, then you know, it certainly beats real jobs and real working, that's for sure. One of the aspects I want to ask you about, because again, you, you'll remember this more than me, has there ever been a time in the last 20 years or so that you realistically thought a team out with the old firm could win the title? Because the two that come to mind for me Hearts under George Burley when they got off to that great start, then a few changes yeah. behind the scenes and it cr- crumbled. And Aberdeen in the Ronnie Dyla season, those two come to mind as being two real, what you would look back on and think, you could say they were missed opportunities for clubs out with Celtic. Well, yeah, I mean, listen, I mean, I, I, I felt strongly for, for, for ages and I've written it many times. That, you know, people talk about reconstruction of the weeks. They talk about redistributing the money more fairly. You know, they talk about Colt teams... The one thing that would absolutely rejuvenate and regalvanise Scottish football would be a team out with Celtic and Rangers winning the league. It would it would be a shot in an arm, an adrenaline shot. You could argue stru- structurally that's unlikely to happen because of Bosman. You know, if if these teams get decent players, sort of with a very good hips team, you know, Scott Brown, Kevin Whitaker team, you know, sorry, Kevin Thompson, Stephen Whitaker team, you know, Celtic and Rangers came along and snapped up their players. Um, you know, and the same with the D United with Andy Robertson and, and Stuart Armstrong and, you know, so, so you know, you can argue it's, it's unlikely to happen, but the, the times that seem most likely to me, I was lucky, I was a student in 1991, I was in Aberdeen, I was at Robert Gordon's, uh, and it was in Halls of Residence, I know that these days that is a very different uh, meaning for people, you know, Halls of Residence now, you're going to stay in your room and never going out, <laughs> but that day we all... We all gathered in the same front room, uh, just behind Pitt Audrey and King Street, uh, across the Pitt Audrey Bar and the halls of residence of Robert Gordon's, to watch 
or listening and radio, I think it was, to Aberdeen going to Ibrox in the final day. Basically, just needing to avoid defeat to win the league. And it was always a lot of Aberdeen fans. I remember Roddy and mature students sitting in there. And it was just electric, you know. And when you think about that now, an Aberdeen team taking it right to the last day. And I think they did, did, did a disallowed goal early on. Or did that Hans Hillhouse miss a fantastic chance? Wonderful chance to take the lead at Ibrox. Uh, and, um, you know, I know Aberdeen fans, one or two, and no one journalist particularly who thinks that day that Alex Smith and Jockey Scott bottled it and changed their team to go to Ibrox instead of just going the way they'd gone. They did a long unbeaten run and went to Ibrox and, they, you know, I think two Mark Hately goals, I remember one soaring header uh, and it was gone. And realistic, we've never really come terribly close since. 1998, the year Hearts won the Scottish Cup, I think they came third and they had a real good go at it under Jim Jeffries. As you say, it was a George Burley year. Um, probably the Ronnie Dyler year with Aberdeen was the best opportunity, I would say, because Celtic were at a low ebb. Standards had dropped. Ronnie Dyler, lovely, lovely guy, one of the, the nicest football managers you will ever deal with, but absolutely a fish out of water. Um, you know, he just didn't have the experience or the gravitas to manage Celtic. Uh, and that was a fantastic opportunity. I think Aberdeen knew that was a fantastic opportunity that year although they never said so publicly. But, you know, you look at it now, Callum, and you're thinking, when is it going to happen? You know, we talk about 10 in a row, and to me, personally, to me, 10 in a row is, is kind of best-dressed man in Albania stuff. Winning 10 in a row in the Scottish League, okay, it's history of a sort, but to me, it doesn't compare to the teams who won nine in a row in the past or competitive league. Um, you know, it's a great achievement for Celtic, but in the current situation in the Scottish Premiership and the Scottish Premier League, is it such a huge feat as it was in the past? Probably not. And in terms of that 10 in a row aspect, if Celtic go on to do that, as you say, it is history of sorts. The one thing that I am always intrigued by, and I suppose this is a hypothetical question because we won't know unless it happens, you just wonder what Celtic will do as a club after 10 in a row. Will they try and, and, and put more focus and emphasis on trying to improve in Europe because the, the European performances in recent years have been been abject um, at best. And, and and how Rangers, if Celtic were to win 10 in a row, how would they look to recover as well? I think a lot of people are focusing on this season as the be-all and end-all, but I think some yeah. people forget there's going to be there's going to be seasons to come after this. And, and those stories, I think, should, should they arise, will be even more intriguing because it will be a sort of unknown era in the sense that this... 10 in a row that people went on and on and on about could happen or it could be gone? Well, I've been about this many times this season already, particularly after Celtic went out to Ferry Varos. I mean, the Celtic appear to have become fixated on 10 in a row. Um, the fans have been really going on about this as four or five in a row. That's fine. understand that. You know, in Glasgow, it's, it's never so much about winning so much as the other lot suffering, which is really... You know, the, the Rangers Celtic fans love to see the other lot in a state of abject misery. And there is no better way to inflict misery in Rangers for Celtic or vice versa than winning 10 in a row because it's something they've never achieved. The problem is that I think for Celtic, strategically, they have taken their eye off the ball because they've been so fixated in this domestic goal. For example, in my opinion, and for speaking to people at the time, you know, they, they reappointed Neil Lennon with 10 in a row in mind because Neil Lennon knew the unique pressure that would come from this season, last season and this season, he knew how to withstand it, he knew how to deal with it. So they weren't thinking, right, strategically, how do we want to move forward? How do we want to become a top 32 Champions League team? You know, how do we want to build on the work that happened under Brendan Rodgers, take the increase in standards, hone it, improve it, and become a bigger, better team in Europe? They were thinking, how are we going to get to 10 in a row? And I think, for me, that's short-sighted. I think when your horizons don't stretch any further than the other side of Glasgow, you become a diminished and a lesser club. And I think the impact for Celtic will be that at the end of this season, they will be a club in need of open-heart surgery. You know, you, you, you go right from the very top. Will Peter Lowell, if they get to 10 in will he think, well, maybe it's time for me to step aside? Will he be able to step aside? Will he say, well, I'll go and become executive chairman a couple of days a week and you know, someone else can be the chief executive and less money. I don't know. I, I don't claim to have any knowledge of that. Then you get to the team manager. For me, Neil Lennon just now is always just one game away from crisis. He's all, there are fans who are really, I think there's a sense of entitlement and spoiledness among Celtic fans who are, it's particularly younger fans who are, who are accustomed to relentless success. Some of them just won't be able to cope with losing a trophy or losing to Rangers a couple of times in a row. 
Um, and, and, you know, Neil Lennon always feels like he's constantly on, on, on the verge of being hounded out of office, really. You know, you, you just don't know what will push it over the edge. So at the end of the season, for me, he would be better getting out because, he, you know, even when he wins, you know, in a sense, he's up against it. And then you have the team, you know, Scott Brown is 35. You have guys like Charm and Edward who won't be around forever. Um, you know, the overseas players don't really care about 10 in a row. So get, just getting to the end of the season with them and the team will be hard enough. Um, you know, Ryan Christie hasn't signed a new contract. I think after 10, he'll look to broaden his horizons, maybe do a Stuart Armstrong. So you will, you know, right from the very top, from chief executive to manager to players, you will be looking at a club in need of very major restructuring and a huge amount of succession. And you would think that really should be happening already. Absolutely. It's going to be, be interesting this season and beyond and, and goodness knows how it's going to go because you're right. It's one game for Celtic away from a crisis and, and Rangers, Rangers the exact same as well. And, and well, that's, that's, a, that's a fair point. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, 10 in a row puts you pressures on both of them. I mean, it, it would be unfair if we missed not to point the same out and the same could be said to Stephen Gerrard. Absolutely right. You know, I mean, Stephen Gerrard to an extent got quite lucky last season in some respects because the curtailment of the season and the circumstances of it removed intense focus on the failure of Rangers to win a trophy, you know, and to stop Celtic in their tracks. So he was almost kind of given a bit of a steer of execution in that regard. They had to hit the ground running this season. And to his credit, he's kind of done that. A couple of bumps along the way, the 0-0 draw at Livingston. Obviously, the draw with Hibs for the defence looked a bit shaky, central defence. You know, if he goes to Celtic Park on October 17th and he loses there, then it will be him who will be the manager in absolute crisis with, with all fingers pointing at him and all eyes gazing in his direction. So that is the reality of a 10 in a row season. Whichever manager fails is effectively looking over his shoulder worrying for his job. Crucially, and I don't know if, if, if you've thought about this a lot, I actually think as well with the, the Premiership in Scotland, I think the Championship, which is normally a league where you can get a wee bit of time as a manager, I think that league's going to be relentless this year in the sense that 27 games, I think there's going to be a lot of managers in that division that are one or two games away from really looking over their shoulder. If you go off to a bad start, you're in deep trouble. Yeah, I mean, champion, the championship is a bloodbath, you know. I mean, I, 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 find, I actually find the championship the most fascinating uh, title in Scotland because it's a financial bloodbath because most, most second tiers across Europe fall into a certain pattern. The teams are all chasing the dream. So they overspend. They spend too much money. And what you're seeing in the Scottish Championship are teams like Dundee United, Hibs when they were down there, Inverness, Dunfermline, you know, you know, Dundee, all making losses of eight hundred thousand ish a year. I think Dundee United, but Dundee United not was like three million pounds or something ridiculous. I mean, it was, you know, monumental, really unsustainable losses which have been propped up by kind of soft loans of the owner or directors. Um, and if you're in that league too long, you're in real trouble and you're in a real danger zone because exactly what you referred to in your question, the pressure, the need to get up. And everyone's assuming this year that, that, that hearts will go up. And that's, that's a perfectly natural, understandable assumption. But the deal made a couple of big ticket signings. So Charlie Adam, Jonathan Afawobi, and some good signings. Um, you know, you look at Dunfermline under new Dunfermline and new German investors who, you know, look the real deal. They don't look like kind of fly-by-nights are going to come in and assets strip the club. They look like solid, sound businessmen. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, you're always going to have teams who are overperforming the points above their weight. The part-time teams, Alan and Broth, just confounded people, you know, by, by refusing to play the role of kind of, club, of weak whipping boys. And then you've got, you know, you, you know, Morton, as you well know, in a, a state of kind of perpetually trying to keep their heads above water. And Queen of the South, who, you know, let's be honest, if you're looking at a team who you're worried about financially in that championship, whether they could even start the season or continue, it would be Queen of the South. I think the, the chairman, Billy Hughes, has been quite open about that. So, you know, I think the championship will begin and I think it will continue because effectively, I think there's an acknowledgement, they have to get hearts back up to the Premier League. You know, Hearts are one of the three or four biggest clubs in Scotland. They cannot be in the Championship for too long for the ecosystem of Scottish football. They have to get them back up. And I think that's the driving force in getting this Championship going with the 27 games thing. Where I think they've made a mistake, Callum, is in the lesser leagues, League 1 and League 2, deciding to copy that model. I think there should be more honesty, more pragmatism. I think those teams should have said, you know what, 
if we can't get fans back into grounds, and there was always a chance they wouldn't get the fans back, maybe we need to look at more seriously curtailing things right until January the 1st or, you know, the beginning of January, see what the situation is then. But on 27 games, they should have looked at doing 18, kept their players either on furlough or just, you know, kept their, their, their wage and a cost base low and then reviewed the situation as they went along. What we see now is a lot of them, players coming off furlough, signing up players, and now they're loaded with players they can't really pay for. That's going to be a real problem. Definitely. And it's going to be something that, again, as, as the months progress, I'm sure we'll see the, the reality of that come to light. We've talked about some of the best moments. I want you to talk about some of the characters. And one man I've been speaking to a few people about recently who I know you've got a story or two about, Paul Lambert. Paul Lambert, good God, yeah. Aye. <laughs> yeah, I, I was expecting that one. Um, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I like Paul Lambert, but Paul, I managed to upset Paul Lambert massively one time. Uh, when I worked for the Celtic View, I um, wasn't long in the door, and I was a younger journalist then, I didn't know it. You know, you're young, you're inexperienced, you don't really know what you're doing, I suppose I was 27, 28. And uh, I, at the beginning of the John Barnes and Kenny Douglas uh, Dream Team year, I met one of the guys I just named in a city centre bar, and he told me that uh, Celtic would be making a few changes. We're bringing in Patrick Mboma, Cameron International striker. They were bringing in Ayo Berkovic. They were signing some big players. And some of the ones who were there already would have to go. Some of them were, were, were troubled, regarded as dressing room trouble. And, you know, that, 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 there would have to be changes. And he told me what he thought the Celtic first 11 would be. That was fine for me to know that, but trying to write that in the club magazine was absolute stupidity and madness. Because every time you're putting in who you think will be in John Barnes' Dream 11, you're leaving someone out. And you're the club magazine now. You know, people say it's Pravda and I get that. And that's why I didn't really like club media. I didn't like, you know, having to toe the line all the time and be a club man first and foremost. So, that, that, you know, it just didn't suit me and I felt deeply uncomfortable with it. And I couldn't really get out of it quickly enough if the truth be told. But I did this, this, this feature, John Barnes' Dream 11, who, who could be in his top team. Of course, Paul Lambert wasn't in it. You know, because we're signing Ayo Berkovic. And of course, Paul Lambert sees us, and we are in Kongsvang in a, a, a pre season training session camp in a hotel with no air conditioning, 31 degrees centigrade. And he comes into dinner one day and he goes mental at me. Rightly, I am not criticizing Paul Lambert for this. He started, what are, you, what, are you, what are you writing that for? Why are you putting ideas in folks' head? I'm not going to be in the team. And he was 100% spot on, he was bang on. You know, it was, it was, it was a, the most stupid idea for, for an article I've ever written in my life. And of course, I just had to sit there and take it and say, yeah, you know, sorry, I made a mistake, hands up. The great irony was that the guy I'd made in the bar who told me what the dream team would be was sitting at the end of the table at the time. And he heard it all. And he leaned over and said, what was that all about? I said, well, I just did a, I did a silly article to upset Paul. And he says, uh, see in future, probably better check that stuff with us. I finally said, hang on a minute. <laughs> it was you who told me what the team, the, the dream team was going to be in the first place. But anyway, that, 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 yeah, that was wonderful. I, I've spoken to Paul since. It's, it's, it's all fine. It's all good. And he's, he's made a, a terrific manager, managerial career since then. You know, he's, he's doing well again now, I see. So uh, that was all my doing. Another um, character from the other side of the Glasgow Divide. Two characters who worked together, Walter Smith and Ali McCoyst. What were they like to, to work with? And crucially also, what was it like when they were in the national team and those two real figureheads of Rangers team up with a Celtic figurehead and Tommy Burns? Yeah, it was great. You know, I mean, we um, had a, a great privilege when Scotland, the only international tournament Scotland had won was the Kering Cup in 2006. Uh, I remember that because my wife was heavily pregnant at the time and wasn't best pleased that I had disappeared to Japan for 10 days, I think. But um, during that period, one of the, the journalists who was there was, was getting married and had a stag night. And, you know, it was kind of indicative of the man. The man who was a Walter Smith came along and Ali came along as well. And, um, you know, it was, it was a, a great night in Rapongi in, in Tokyo. And that, that kind of, that does definitely help a bonding to, to, to take part, take place, you know, with the kind of younger journalists who didn't know so well, it was a kind of younger group of journalists who hadn't really been, a, you know, at the top of a, a game when, when Rangers were winning everything in the 90s. Um, so, yeah, we got to know Walter Smith on night in Ali as well, we had a great night. And I have to say, after that, he was always absolutely brilliant. I 
I've got all the all the time in the world for Walter Smith. I think he's a, a tremendous man. Um, I thought he was a great pragmatic manager who knew how to get results. Wasn't always pretty to watch. As he always pointed out, when he played 4-4-2 or 4-3-3, Rangers didn't win games. When he played 4-5-1, they didn't lose them. So, you know, he was a great pragmatist. He did the same with Scotland, if you remember. You know, that, that was, we won that Kidding Cup. And then, of course, we became very close to getting to the, the uh, 2008 Euros, although he did obviously leave to join Rangers, at, 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 you know, midway through that campaign, which caused a bit of upset amongst members of the Tartan Army. But, listen, you know, given the financial differential there and the fact there was Rangers, I, I, I couldn't blame him for that at all, frankly. Um, and Ali obviously had a really torrid time of it as Rangers manager, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know, I, mean, I, I think it should, most people's views that to listen to Ali because he's a pundit and things is great to listen to, you know, and, um, it's, you know, they always said about Ali that if, if you fell in the cloud, you come back out again with a couple of salmon in each pocket. He's just one of these lives of one of these careers. But he had a really torrid time of it as manager of the Rangers. An appalling spell of it when, when the club were absolutely, you know, in the, in, in, in the brown stuff, you know. And uh, he's come through the other side and he survived. Fair play to him for that. I don't, I don't know what the rest of us can say the same. <laughs> <laughs> it was a torrid period. <laughs> it certainly was. It was, a, it was a period, as we mentioned earlier, that was just... Just surreal, like, like this situation we're in at the moment. And, and as you say, there were statements coming out late at night, etc. Well, you know, the thing is, Cal, I mean, you know, there'll be a lot of fans saying, oh, listen to him sucking up to Walter Smith and Ali McCoy and Paul. You know, the, the, I think the thing people have to remember is, in our line of work, we deal with people as human beings, you know. It's not just a case of, ah, he works for them and he works for them. You know, we actually deal with them. And, you know, it's only natural that you respond to them in terms of how they treat you. If they're good to you, then, then you feel better inclined to them. If they, if, if they treat you like a human being, that can't be said of all football people when it comes to journalists. Then, you know, you, 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 you tend to look more benevolently on them. You know, so, you know, people say, ah, you give such and such an easy time. You know what? Sometimes we probably do give people too easy a time. You know, we're just human beings and we judge them. We take people as we find them, ultimately. Absolutely, and, and and I wanted to come to sort of the future of print media, but before I come to that, something that's changed a lot over the years, and again, you're probably one of the, the perfect people to ask about this, is access. How have, how have you found that changing over the years, especially when you think of the bigger clubs like Celtic and Rangers, where maybe years ago you could sit down with a Walter Smith and Ali McCoy on occasion with journalists and have a candid chat, whereas now it seems from the outside looking in that PR divisions have obviously risen up and there's more layers to go through. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a decent observation. I mean, it's news management now for football clubs. I mean, when I started out in the beginning of 1993 with the weekly news, we used to go out, we'd get a pool car, and we would sit down on Monday morning and we'd draw for a list of ideas. And if you had an idea to go and speak to Paul McStay, you jumped in the car, you went out to the Celtic car park, and you sat in the car park until Celtic came back from training at Barrafield got out of that car and you tried to ambush your player in the car park. You just walked up to him in the car park and said, Paul, any chance of a word? At Rangers, you would send an email. So not an email. Uh, but you would send a, a fax or, or a phone up uh, Walter Smith's uh, assistant, Laura, and you would put in a request to speak to Stuart McCall or Richard Goff or whoever, and you would get a phone call back saying, yeah, that's okay. You can come and do that. You would go and sit under the marble staircase. You'd wait for him coming down the stairs for lunch. You'd get five minutes with him and fill your page. Nowadays, you know, you, you, you're more chance of throwing a, a, a 10 double sixes in a row than you have of, of getting a one-to-one -one with a player or a manager of one of these clubs, you know. I mean, it's not possible, but it's very, very difficult. To be fair to them, you know, they, they do their best to, to rotate and give you access to players in a press conference setting. But out with that, it's more difficult than ever. Um, and, you know, right now, and during the kind of coronavirus crisis, you know, we're not even getting to sit in the room with them, obviously. I mean, it's a Zoom calls or it's a conference call by telephone, which doesn't really allow you to get the kind of like personal interaction or the kind of off-the-record kind of like tips or hints or to ask the kind of questions you'd really like to ask if you're, if you're sitting around a, a table with a manager. You know, I can remember times under, you know, Neil Lennon, Brendan Rogers, Walter Smith, Ali McCoy, or whoever, where they would say, right, guys, take recorders off, off the record. This is how it is. We're just not getting that at the minute. Makes it more difficult, makes it more challenging. But, you know, the circumstances are challenging for everyone. So I, I don't pretend that that's important in the bigger picture. Uh, it's just slightly more testing, that's all. 
And when you mentioned there about off the record and, and, and the nature of that, it's something that I think a lot of football fans actually don't don't really fully appreciate because as you know as, as well as I do, a lot of the information you can be told about a club or a player or a manager, you couldn't possibly print because it, it, it's off the record for for a reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, they, 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 I think the one thing being an experienced journalist brings you is knowing what not to write as much as what to write, you know? I mean, there are... I can think of a high-profile one just now, which is an open secret. But you know, we you know we know that you, you just can't write it. I think fans don't quite realise that. Whereas on the internet, you can pretty much say what you like, or people think you can say what you like. You know, we are subject to to press standards. Uh, people laugh at that, but we do have an Ipsos guide of uh, editors' code. Um, there are defamation rules. You know, for example, you know the Michael Stewart um, situation with the BBC recently, and whereas fans are saying, "Oh my goodness, Michael Stewart should be allowed to say what he likes," and you know, what, you, you, you can sympathise with the view that you want freedom of speech, you want people to say whatever they like, but there are defamation rules that, that we have to be aware of, that supporters aren't always aware of. You cannot just say what you like in our line of work. You have to be conscious that you're not defaming, uh, you're not slandering anyone, that they're not going to come back and take legal action against you, because if they do, then you can get your paper in a great deal of financial and legal trouble. And in the current climate of you know declining advertising and circulations, you don't really want to be that journalist. And it's very difficult because you can't really argue that to people sometimes. That's that's just the reality of journalism, and it's always been the case now more so than ever. Indeed, and that's something that I think is important to state. And in terms of print media, again, you know what it's like, Stephen. Lots of people talk about, oh, it's going to be Armageddon. It's got two years left. It's got five years left. I feel like those conversations have been going on for, for a long yeah. time. And, and for me, yes, of course, circulations, etc., you can say are declining. But there is still an appetite for print journalism, although some people try and pretend there isn't. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I'm biased. Uh, we'll come at this from a biased perspective, but I would argue that most of the transfer stories, most of the the agenda setting stories that come in Scottish football come from newspapers. People, listen, we are between tax inspectors and traffic wardens in, the, in, in terms of public affections, you know? I mean, uh, that's just a fact of life because I think, I think in a social media world, it's, it's brought real challenges. There's no question about that. You know, people tend to say, ah, print is dying because they don't cover my team in such and such a way or they're biased towards them. Or, you know, that, that, that ignores the bigger structural issue, which is that people are just consuming their news in a different way now. You know, they're getting it from 24-hour news channels. They can get it from the internet. Fan forums and message boards have been set up and, and great fan media. Uh, and that's fine. And what that allows people to do, whereas in the old days, like 30 years ago when I started, all you really had was newspapers and television stations. And newspapers tried to cater for everyone. People don't want something that caters for everyone now. They want their own bias to be confirmed. That's just human nature. You know, in social media, you follow who's going to agree with you all the time. You know, people exist in an echo chamber now. So rather than get, get their news from a newspaper, they don't tell them exactly what they want to hear. If you tell them things they don't want to hear, you get abuse and you'll go and follow and listen to someone who does tell them what they want to hear, you know? You know, I mean, the journalists are derided as puppets of such and such, of this chief executive. I mean, I get it all the time. That's from people who, when you tell people what they don't want to hear, social media now gives them an avenue to abuse you. Um, and that, that, that's been a challenge inside. But I think if we deny that these are unparalleled challenging times, we'd, we'd be kidding everyone on. Of course they are. You know, the business is contracting. Um, I think a process that might have taken five to ten years has been expedited into months. You know, it's, it's all been brought much much closer to us and it's happening much quicker now because of coronavirus and the squeeze on circulations and on um, advertising. It's not really so much circulation, I think, I think it's advertising. You know, it makes me laugh when I see people saying, oh, Neil Doncaster should go out and get a, a sponsor for, for the SPFL. Yeah, where's he going to get it in the current climate? You're looking at airline industries, retail, bookmakers, you know, all kinds of sectors of the serious crisis. And where's, where does people want to make newspapers decline about the fact that, you know, we, we have an agenda and we don't, we don't write about this and we write about them or vice versa? The fact is that we are just the same as everyone else. There's a massive world pandemic crisis going on just now and we're suffering. 
And, and I think one of the other things that I want to state, because I think it is very important, you mentioned the rise of fan media, um, podcasts, independent websites. Obviously, this, what, what I'm doing with CFB is independent, but what I would crucially always say, and I always try and emphasise to people, I am not a journalist. I wouldn't insult a journalist by, by claiming to be one. I think when you, you see some of the other successful um, independent media, you could call them so independent social media type websites that have been set up, it is important for people to realise that, yes, you can be informed at times if you're not a journalist, but there's a complete difference between fan media um, and, and journalism, and there's a craft of journalism that people need to appreciate. I mentioned the likes of yourself, Hugh McDonald. You, you, you've been working in the industry for many years, you've built up contacts and, and you're given a perspective on the game, having covered it for a long period of time. And also, as I say, I just want to emphasise that when people have a go at print media and, and journalism, I think they need to sometimes realise that, yes, you might have a different way of, of consuming media, but there is still a highly important place for professionally trained journalists and, and that can't go anywhere. Well, 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 you know, the thing with fan media, you know, there's a, oh, great, I get my news from fan media. Yeah, great, that's fine. You know, that, 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 I understand that 100%. But what you quite often find, we say with one or two high-profile clubs in Scotland right now, is the fan media is given access to the club, to press conferences, to exclusive news and information. There's a price to be paid for that. They are expected to toe the line. You know, they are expected to not rock the boat. They're not expected to, to speculate over transfer stories, which is, you know, they're not expected to break transfer stories or, or discuss the latest kind of rumours of a dressing room rift or the manager was in the dressing room. In return for the sweeties from the table, they are expected to toe the line. That's just a fact of life. You know, and, you know, listen, there's an element of that in every area of media, and we are no, we are, we are no exception. You know, we have to find the right balance between, you know, covering somebody fairly and not upsetting them to the point where they will never talk to us again because we are no use if we don't have contacts and people will pick up the phone to us. So there's a fine balance, you know. I think fan media, uh, people want to exist in an echo chamber where they only hear what they want to hear. That's fine if you want that. Personally, I think it's quite healthy and good if you could hear differing opinions and you can handle those opinions and you can engage with those opinions without abuse or without thinking somebody has an agenda. You know, there has to be a civil way for people to hear what's going on in the world without just kind of putting their fingers in their ears and saying, wah, 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 which I think is what we see too often now. Absolutely, and I think that also stems from the inability for people to compromise, and, and I'm not going to name any politicians uh, per se, because at the end of the day, it's not a political show, but you look at politics in the UK now, and even in America and other countries where it's one viewpoint versus another viewpoint, there's never any compromise to come into the middle where you can get a majority um, of people yeah, to say, I, I agree with that or I disagree with that side, it's all... It's all just slanging matches. And, and as you say, if you enjoy the echo chamber environment, that's great because your side always wins because you're only the follow pe people you agree with. But I well, think well, that's something that's a concern. Yeah, football, social media is really like politics. You know, I see, I see the kind of, you know, the whole kind of, you know, a cyber nut unionist thing going on. And you think, you know, it's really no different from the way, you know, the kind of discourse of football has, has, has found its way into politics now, you know where, as you, like, you rightly say, people are so polarised. There is, there is no room for opinions in the middle. You must be here, you must be there. And I think we saw that in the summer more than ever, you know, where people really picked their side and stuck to it. Um, I, I find it quite depressing, you know. I think, I think we should be able to disagree with people civilly without saying you are a such and such, or you have an agenda, or you have this, or you're you such and such's puppet for crying out loud. Come on, let's grow up, you know. Absolutely, absolutely agree with that and I hope that's something that, that can, can return to the fore in, in, in the months ahead because it's going yeah, to be... Yeah, but it won't, it, won't, it won't until social media companies get on top of it and force yeah. people to put their own names and their own jobs in their, in their media profiles. You know, we, you have so many anonymous profiles and anonymous, anonymous tough guys and keyboard hard men who, who have an open platform to go and have a go. But listen, you have to be big enough and strong enough to stand up for that. If you don't like that, you get, all, you get out of the kitchen. Simple as that. In terms of the two, two last main talking points, Stephen, um, apologies for taking up so much of your time today. No, um, the state of play of our game domestically now, you alluded earlier on about the, the, the lack of sponsor for, 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 the, for the league. That's something that's been mentioned quite a few times. Our clubs in Europe, um, Celtic obviously used to pride themselves, especially at the start of this 
10 in a row type either, if you want to call it that, as a Champions League club who would get to the last 16 or at least get to the group stages. That's changed now. They are a Europa League club. If you look at, at recent performances and results, Rangers are now back in the Europa League in, in recent years under Steven Gerrard. But again, crucially, below those two clubs, we don't have an Aberdeen or a Hibs that seem capable of getting into that group stage. So, so where are we as a nation now domestically? Uh, God, that's a great question. It's uh, really hard to... Uh, I think you're right. It's, it's quite disturbing. I think it's 2008 was the last time Aberdeen in the Europa League group stages, a team of Stranger Celtic. And you think that shouldn't be beyond them. Because if you look at teams like Molda, even Ferenc Varos have reached the Champions League by beating Molda last night, their budgets are not manifestly bigger are hugely, substantially, significantly bigger. They're sufficiently smaller than Celtic and Rangers, who, as you say, have become Europa League teams. I think you could argue Celtic with better team selection may have been able to get to that level. But even when they do get to that level, you know, I can, I can see both sides. If Celtic and Rangers in the Champions League, there's a real chance they will lose five or six goals, you know, because you have these this European elite of PSG, super clubs, Bayern, PSG, the English clubs of Liverpool, Chelsea, Manchester City, um, Real Madrid, Barcelona, they are absolutely in a different stratosphere now. And there's a part of me thinks that it would be no bad thing if they did form a breakaway league now went the wrong way because they are so utterly out the out the reach of of kind of bigger clubs and small nations now it's very difficult. You then have a second tier, and that's what Rangers and Celtic should be aiming to be, in my opinion. You know, your second tier of kind of like Red Bull, Salzburg, um, Ajax, Feyenoord. Porto, Sporting Lisbon, Ghent, Anderlecht, your kind of Atlantic League teams as we used to call them. I think that I think that should be a realistic sphere for Celtic and Rangers to be competing in, both budget-wise in terms of their, their, their status as clubs. And then after that, I think you have a third tier, which I think Aberdeen and Hearts and Hibs. I mean, Hearts and Hibs, you know, in Aberdeen in European terms are chronic underachievers. You know, their budgets, their budgets should be capable occasionally of finding a way into those group stages. You know, I mean, I, th- I think as there have been teams from Luxembourg in the group stages of the Europa League recently. You know, I mean, come on. I mean, is it, I, I appreciate that the seeding makes it very difficult. If they get to a sporting Lisbon or, a, you know, an Arsenal or something in the final playoff round, it becomes very, very difficult. But, you know, they are not really contributing much to the coefficient, which is what we need to, to, to make it easier to qualify. And, I've a lot of time for Derek McInnes, I've a lot of time for Hearts and for Hibs as clubs. You know, I really would love to see them challenging and making Scottish football a stronger product. But at the minute, it still feels as if we're quite some way away from that. I, I agree, and I think the proof is in the pudding there in the European competitions. I mean, Shamrock Rovers and, and Dundalk, I know you could yeah. argue because when they win their league, they maybe get, a, get an easier seeding compared to our clubs. But if they're getting to the group stages, you think, how can a club like Aberdeen not get in there? But hopefully... In the years to come, that's the case. The, I'd love it. I think we would all love it. It'd be great for the game. It really would. I absolutely would. I mean, you think of the, the sort of Jimmy Calder would either, those games against Bayern Munich and, and the fanfare those created in the old UEFA Cup. I mean, if we can bring those back, it would be just <laughs> to be great. fair, I remember that year, right? Like, it was almost harder to get knocked out that year than it was to qualify. <laughs> you know, the, the, the format changed and made it a bit tougher since then. I mean, they're bringing in this third competition UEFA, aren't they? So, um, you know, hopefully that will create some kind of avenue. Because the one thing we did find out last season with Celtic and Rangers is that when they're winning games, you know, as clubs and as a country, we feel better about ourselves. I mean, I, I personally would rather Celtic and Rangers were winning games against Lazio and PSV Eindhoven and so on and Porto in the Europa League than being cuffed by PSG and Bayern Munich in the Champions League. I think that, you know, we, we are great self-flagellators in Scotland. You know, we love to beat ourselves up and be incredibly negative. And I think when Celtic were beating Lazio and Rangers were doing so well last season, I think the country kind of, not everyone, of course, because we're a tribal bunch, but I think the country is able to puff itself up a bit and say, you know what, the coefficient's getting better. We're getting closer to an automatic place in the Champions League. So, you know, it's not perfect. We'd like a team in the Champions League. But if we can get teams winning games in the Europa League and if we can get to a status where Aberdeen and Hearts and Hibs can get to a challenging position, I would take that every day. Uh, definitely. And, and I hope that can, can be the case sooner rather than later. The, the last major talking point I have for you, Stephen, today is the national side. We're coming up to mm. official game against Israel. <laughs> I, I, feel, 
<laughs> I feel I feel a lot of people assume we're just going to beat Israel and, and move on to Norway or Serbia. I'm not one of those at the moment. I worry about the national team in the sense that we've got, for some reason in Scotland, we can produce top-class left-backs, but there's a few positions that I think are particularly bare. I think the centre-half department is, is lacking a real standout who can who can lead the other person who's playing alongside them along. And I think up top, I know Lyndon Dykes uh, performed well in the, the last set of games and he's been doing well at QPR, but is he the answer to, to kick Scotland on as a nation long-term? I, I don't know, only time will tell. Those two positions, the centre-back and the, and the striker, for me, are two crucial positions. I just worry we don't have enough to go over the line in these games. Yeah, I mean, it's a kind of, you know, we're, we're always having to put square pegs in round holes, aren't we? I mean... You know, a lot of people have misgivings about the Tierney Robertson thing with Tierney playing West Centre back, but you know he's doing it for Arsenal. Robertson is playing a similar role with Liverpool, so I can I can understand why Steve Clark wants to try and persevere with that. I'm not having Scott McTominay as a centre half. Sorry, that's not for me. Um, I'd rather see Liam Cooper and Scott McKenna. Um, you know, the problem is you've got a very left-sided, biased uh, defence there, but I would rather see that. Um, you know, kind of right wing back, you know, that's that's not great. You know, you could, James Forrest can do. I thought William Palmer did okay the last time out. But, you know, with certain positions, right back, right wing back, you know, right centre back, centre forward, as you rightly identify, where we just have really, just just real areas of, of alarming weakness. You know, if you look at the, the nations who punched above their weight, like Northern Ireland are our best comparison. You know, we absolutely should be able to do what Northern Ireland are doing get to Euro 2016, but they had a really good central defensive partnership. You know, they had, you know, Gareth McCauley, Johnny Evans, these guys. And that's that's what's really killed us. The inability to keep wins out of a course, as they say in Glasgow, <laughs> has really killed us. And um, we have to become hard to beat again. And Steve Clark was always very good. And I could understand the logic of getting Steve Clark in because that's what he did with Kilmarnock. He made them really hard to beat. The problem is that Steve Clark is a training ground coach. And as Scotland manager, you don't get time on the training grounds. And I think he's found this really difficult to acclimatise to from speaking to him. And I think he's found it a real frustration. You know, uh, with Kilmarnock, he started getting results of Kilmarnock after something like 75 training sessions. It would take him probably seven years to get 75 training sessions with Scotland. He's not going to get seven years. So he just doesn't get the time and the opportunity to do what he's good at. And that kind of raises the question again of what you need from a national manager. Do you need a training ground coach or do you just need somebody who can go in there and say, come on, boys, let's get stuck in? And people can scoff at that. But, you know, they can't sign players, so recruitment isn't an issue. They don't have time to coach them. Maybe you just need an old-fashioned motivator who can organise a team. You know, maybe a Walter Smith type, you know, who can just find a way to get the absolute best out of fairly scant resources. Although we'd argue what Walter Smith had were better than we have now. But I agree with you, sorry to answer, to, to get back to your point, I agree with you that Israel is going to be an absolute seat of the pants game. Great players of Munoz Dabur, you know, the, the, the fellow who scored the goal, he's, he's banging them in. Uh, the 33-year-old striker. That's the one. You know, I mean, they, 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 you know, they're really good players. Israel, we will, if we get pants that, it will inevitably be seat of the pants. And then going away to Norway, you know, Erling Haaland, uh, you know, I mean, you'll be watching that game, you know, for the, the cracks of your fingers, watching Scott McKenna up against Erling Haaland, although I think Scott McKenna's improved immensely and I think he will improve in England. Um, but, you know, him, you've got Christopher Ayer, who's not perfect, but he's a good player. You know, you've got Odegaard, strong players in all positions. I agree with you. I was optimistic when we first got to the playoff. I'm not terribly optimistic now, especially in a one-off game. Although, you never know, maybe Norway, they've not been to a major finals for a long time either. They will be tense. They will be nervous if they get to the brink. All the pressure will be on them at home. So, listen, we have to hope, but it's hope rather than expectation. I agree. I think it's, when it comes to Scotland, the, the hope is the, is the main thing we, we try and maintain. But at times, it's it's challenging to, to keep that hope, Stephen. It's, it's, it's the been hope a, that kills you, as they say. Yeah. It, it certainly is. And and I just want to thank you again for your time. I, I mean what I say. Um, I, I've been on record on my platforms as saying it, that I really enjoy the work of yourself, Hugh McDonald. I look out for those pieces every weekend. How can, how can people follow you on Twitter and, crucially, buy a newspaper? Because I like the fact you always say, 
paper first, Twitter second. Yeah, but I mean, you get a lot of people <laughs> coming on to say, can you tell me what's in the mirror? And that's just saying, nah, you know, that has to go in the newspaper first. I can't go on Twitter first, you know. Um, inevitably, there will be the odd thing that will, will, will go up. If, if you know something is getting out in an hour or two, it's not going to keep them in the next morning's paper, then by all means, we get it online. And that's the other thing about the decline of, people talk about the decline of newspapers. It's not a decline of newspapers per se. It's just the way we're delivering news is changing. You know, it's going from print to online. I mean, mail online is an immensely successful platform. Um, you know, newspapers are, are doing things online. I don't necessarily like the way they do it all the time. I think there's too much clickbait. I'm not a fan of that. You know, I would rather be a kind of substantial, meaningful journalism, and I hope that can find a way online instead of just kind of like being quick, being fast, and being inaccurate. Um, but, you know, we are where we are. But, um, yeah, you know, we, you know, it's marrying the social media and, the, you know, the, 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 the giving your copy away free with the need to be commercially uh, profitable, which has always been the hard part for newspapers. And how we crack that is going to be the, the key to survival, really. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again for, for coming on the show. No, thanks for having me. Thanks so much. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song